You're listening to a message from New Life Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Renee, Annette, and I missed you last week. We just want you to know that, okay? So, yeah. What a great team. We do. We have some wonderful, uh, wonderful team members. It's, it's pretty incredible and in that it's so open for everyone to participate, to be part of that. And um, I know when that happens, there's just something that goes on in our lives where we just sense a greater connection, you know? We sense a greater connection with each other. We sense a greater connection with God. And I think that has a lot to do with, uh, with, with serving each other and serving in community. And so, good morning. Let me say that to you. Did I say that already? Good morning. Good morning. It's good to hear that. Listen, I want you to do this with me. I want you to open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. We've been spending some time in this wonderful passage of Scripture. I think it's been the last three weeks. It's Romans chapter 8, and today we're going to look at verses 28 through 34. But before before we do that, what I want you to do with me is I want you to help me fill in these blanks. Here they are. After you're done eating, you should wait at least an hour before you go... Boy, you guys are good. That's good. Eating carrots will improve your... There you go. Don't go outside with wet hair or you'll catch a... There you go. You guys are good. You're on to this. You feed a cold and you starve a... All right. Good. Good so far. Too much spicy food can cause... Some of you go, I don't know, gas. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, heartburn or ulcers, that's usually what we have to say. Listen, how many times have you heard one of those kinds or all those different sayings? Especially as parents, we use those all the time. These sayings have something in common, they really do. And oftentimes we think, well, what they have in common is wisdom. It's just wisdom. But do you know what else they actually have in common? They're not true. They're, they're not true. None of them are true. Not single. Not one single one of those was true. They've never been proven medically. They've never been proven scientifically. And yet we pass them on from generation to generation. Now here's the problem. The problem we face as Christians is sometimes we do with the Bible that what we just did with those statements. So we take the Bible and we have these statements. We have these verses that we jump onto. We pick verses out. We hold on to them. We really don't understand why or who it was written to. And Christians can be great at grabbing verses and saying, this is what I know about God. I know this about God or I know that about God. This is what I'm claiming. I'm claiming this one. You know, I have, a, I have a wonderful verse. It's a great verse, and some of you have it as your life verse, so I don't want to rain on your parade, but I hear this often, Jeremiah 29, 11. You've heard that one? Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Wonderful passage of Scripture, but oftentimes when we grab onto that one, we're not really looking at what's going on before that, and we're not really paying attention to what's going on after that. Because what's going on before that is 70 years of captivity. That, that's, just, that's hard stuff. And what Jeremiah is doing, by the way, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. So we don't really sign up for his you know, gig. We, none of us really want to be the weeping prophet, especially what happened to him. Just dipped down in a big well and just left there. And no one really wants to know what happened after. What happened after is they returned back into Jerusalem, and it was a tough gig to get everything back in order according to God's plan. 
Now, I love that passage of Scripture, but I always want to know, where does it come from? It's a great verse, but no one likes reading what goes on before or what goes on after. Romans 8.28 is one of those most misquoted verses. It's misunderstood, and when we read it, sometimes we just really haven't gotten a hold of what it really means. What does this verse really mean? So here's the problem. It's in the middle of Romans. Six books already into the New Testament. It's 45 books into the Bible. So this is what I'm going to do with you this morning. Just for a moment, I want to give you a little context. I want to go back and give you a little context to Genesis 1. Can I do that? We'll go back to Genesis chapter 1. Some of you are going, oh my gosh, how long is this going to take? No. Genesis 1 verse 1. It's where the Bible starts. It's the very first page of the Bible. It says that everything was created a long time ago. What it tells us is that God's voice spoke things into being. That there's an unmade maker. That there's a creator behind creation. That everything that has happened has happened by design. It's not random. God has put it all together. And then you go to page two in Genesis and it says that God wants to have this incredible relationship with you. That that he wants to spend time with you. That he wants his relationship with you to be the best. He wants your relationship with others to be the best. And then you go to page three and there is this train wreck. This horrible thing happens. And you know what the Bible does? The rest of the Bible is sorting out that train wreck. That's really what we see here. That's the Bible, page one, great God. Page two, wants to have a relationship with you. Page three is a train wreck. And ever since, God has been showing us how to work through the train wreck. God has been teaching you, walking you through, how do you deal with this train wreck? So here's the big question. Did God allow the train wreck? Yes. Did God cause the train wreck? No. God wanted us to have a free will to love him uh, because we want to, not because we have to. And and when we talk about free will, what does that imply? That implies that if you have the ability to say yes to God, you also have the ability to say no to God. And that's really what happened in the train wreck. There was the ability to say yes, and God wanted that relationship. But what happened is there were people there that said no. Didn't God realize the train wreck on page three? Yes. And he allowed it to happen anyways. Did my wife and I realize that by having children, these children would not be perfect? Did we realize that these children would talk back to us? Did we realize that they would cause us harm? That we would give them our hearts? I mean, we would give them our lives. We would give them everything. Would they come along? Would they hurt us? Yes, they hurt us. We are dumb enough not to just do it once. We did it three times. That's what we did. Why? Why do you do that? Because there is always a risk when you love. And and we knew the risk. And I would say this and I would do it and I would say it over and over again. I would do it a thousand times again. And you see what God is saying to us through his word is that he would do this a thousand times over. That even though our lives can be full of train wrecks, what he's saying is, I'm coming, I want to help you sort those train wrecks out. And the rest of the Old Testament is not about how are we supposed to get to God, but it's about how God has gotten to us. What did he do? Well, he sent his only son, the only way, the only truth, the only life. That's what he did. That's how he solved the problem of our train wrecks. 
Because he said, I'm going to give you something that is beyond your imagination. I'm going to give you something that's, that's beyond. Here's the truth. Everyone wants a God who blesses their lives. But not everyone wants to be spiritually changed. So God uses a former terrorist, the Apostle Paul. <laughs> because what did he do? He, he, he really did. He, he chased the church around. He, he was going after the church. I, I think he was well-meaning, but what he was doing is he was killing Christians because he felt that those Christians were a, a threat to, to, to God's law and what God was up to. So what does God do? He uses this former terrorist to write the book of Romans to show us what spiritual change is supposed to be, what it really looks like. And when you get a book from a former terrorist, you read it closely. You pay attention to what he has to say. And he says, Rome, I, I, I want to tell you about Jesus. I want, to, I want to write you a letter and I want to talk to you about Jesus. So here's what the Apostle Paul has said to us so far from the letter of Romans. Romans chapters 1 through 3, he says there's some bad news. Folks, there's, there's bad news in our lives. We have all fallen short. We'll, we'll, never, we'll never make it to God on our own. You can't work there. You can't get there on your own. We are all sinners who sin, that no matter who you are or where you come from or what you do, you have this cancer called sin. And then he turns this corner in Romans chapters 4 and 5, and he says, you can be justified because Jesus died for your sins, that while you were still sinners, and even more, while you were still an enemy of Christ. Jesus came and he died for you. Jesus made us right before a holy God. That's that word justification. And then in Romans chapters 6 and 7, Paul says that we have been set apart. That, that you and I have been set apart in Jesus, free from the bondage of sin in Jesus Christ. He says that you can serve your old flesh or you can serve Jesus, but you can only serve one master. What he's saying is Jesus is worth serving. And he says if you're married to Jesus, you just can't go date other people. That's what he's saying. That when we say we covenant with Jesus Christ, when we say we commit our life to him, that when we say that we're Christ's followers, that carries a lot of weight. And that we can't be out there dating these other ideas and these other philosophies and these other religions. What he's saying is you commit your heart wholeheartedly to Christ. And then you get to the end of chapter 7. And he says this, the apostle Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. Why does he say that? He says, for what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. And then you go to chapter 8. And he says, the apostle Paul tells us, we have options now. That we're not, we're not locked into just a sinful life. He tells us that the mind set on the flesh brings death. But the mind set on the spirit brings life and Paul tells us that it won't be easy. He says, listen, there's going to be some suffering. There's going to be some trials. There's going to be some hardships. But now we operate under the influence of the Spirit of God. When you have your mind and your heart set on the things of the Spirit, there's life and there's liberty and there's freedom for those who set their minds on the Spirit. Now we get to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Listen to what it says here. It says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. I love this. I love it. It says, and we know. Say that. And we know. 
This is an absolute. This is a fact that we know no matter what we face, the struggles that we go through, the hardships that we deal with, we know. But hear the wording of what we know here. And that's what we need to pay attention. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. This is one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. There is an if and then clause in this. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. So what he's saying here is that if you're loving God and walking according to his purpose, then we know that whatever we're doing, that whatever comes our way, God can bring good out of it. God can bring great things out of it. Is everything you're going through good? Does it feel like it's good? I think the answer is no. I mean, when you talk about some of the calamity that you deal with, when you talk about the life journey that you're on, uh, cancer, is that good? No. Is broken relationships, is that good? No. What Paul is saying here is that when you love him and you're walking according to his purpose, that whatever it is that you face, he will bring good out of it. See, you and I don't have the ability to do that. (laughs) We try. We want to, but it's only God that has the ability to bring good out of train wrecks. Not that all things will be good. Not that all things will turn out good, according to our definition of what good is, and that's another issue, isn't it? I mean, we already defined for God. We've already gone to God with this pre-package, and we said, God, this is my definition of good. This is how I want you to come through. We've We've got it really wired in. And we say, here, God, this is what would be good for me. Here's my definition of good. And when it doesn't work out like that, oftentimes we get so devastated because we're thinking, where's the good? Well, the good is there because God is there. God is in it. That's where the good is. I mean, think about Paul's good. Imagine that guy. I mean, you know, he signs up on on the good side now. He's no longer a terrorist. And what does he do? He dives in with both feet. He gets shipwrecked, he gets beaten, he gets chased out of town, he ends up in prisons. What happens? He gets sent to Rome. What happens there is he gets beheaded. And I think some Christians might be saying, well, wow, if 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 it all worked for good, what where is that? I mean, maybe maybe he'll raise from the dead or something. No, he didn't raise from the dead. Paul didn't. You know what good came out of that? A letter you're reading this morning. Man, he didn't even know you were going to read it. He didn't have any idea, really, that you were going to actually sit down on July 17th and open your Bible to Romans chapter 8 and read about what this good God does. Wow. See, how you define good in the, in, in the boxes that we put in, put, put good in, confine, I think, really, in our own minds, the, the true and real work of God. You know, there might be some things that you are going through right now and it doesn't feel good. It feels awful. But you love the Lord. You're walking according to his purpose and you're thinking, God, where's the good? Can I, can I say something to you? And, I, and I, I hope this doesn't break your heart, but you might not ever see it. You, you, you might not. 
It might be good that comes out in your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren or the generations to come because you made some good decisions to follow God even in the most difficult time. That's the good. That's the good. I love this passage of Scripture because it just brings me to this place where I I look at the goodness of God. And, you know, then we take this verse and and, and we fit it in again to our own definition of good. (laughs) I've heard people say, boy, uh, what if Jesus had this verse? Maybe he would have avoided the cross, you know? Because that's the way we define it sometimes. It means circling around or going around suffering and sorrow. Jesus knew this. And the Bible says, and for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross. Because there was good coming. There was good coming. There's a resurrection that his disciples didn't even get a hold of. You know, it was the first Easter that wasn't packed. I mean, it was the first Easter, and really nobody showed up. Imagine that. Jesus comes out, and I, he said, I told you guys. Listen, dudes, I told you this is what was going to happen. I've been telling you this for a while. And I come out, and you guys aren't even around. And, and I see, oh, there's a gardener I can talk to. There's someone crying over here that thinks I'm the gardener. They were blinded. Because why? They had their idea, their thoughts of what good was really like. And what God says, it's by the power of his Holy Spirit that our our minds, our hearts are opened to what God wants to do. The disciples, imagine their lives, most of them ended up dead for the sake of Christ. I don't know how that fits into our American theology. I really don't. I think it just kind of messes with us, doesn't it? Listen to what verses 29 through and 30 say. It says this, For those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And if you're reading this for the very, very first time, you're probably thinking to yourselves, man, it sounds like I'm reading a Dr. Seuss book. Because all of these fancy words, you want stained glass words? Those are some stained glass words. Hey, for 2,000 years, brilliant biblical minds, greater minds than myself, have been sorting through those words. They've been going through those words, foreknew and predestined and and justified. And when Paul sent this letter to Rome, he, he didn't have all these arguments. He didn't have all those people sitting around and wondering, what does predestined mean? And what does foreknowledge mean? And what, he didn't have that. I think sometimes we blow these words way out of the water. I think Paul was just trying to let us know that God knew you and he had a plan for you and that God chose you and that you were made holy through Jesus Christ, that God made you, that God has a plan for you, that God chose you, that God called you. The bottom line, this has always been about Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. I get it, I get it. We go through and we want to know what some of these words mean. But I think sometimes, I don't think Paul was thinking, man, you know, I'm going to make this really complicated for them. And I think if you were to talk to Paul right now, he'd just say, well, I didn't know it was going to mess you guys up for 2,000 years really trying to talk about this. I, uh, th- all I wanted you guys to know is Jesus. I wanted you to know that he 
He loves you and he knows you and he has a plan for you and he chose you and he called you. That's, that's all I want. I want you to know. I think that's what Paul is really saying here. Here it is. Be confident. I love this. It says be confident. Why? Because of what he's done for us. Don't worry. Don't live in anxiety. God works even in the train wrecks. What Paul is saying is that from the beginning to the end, uh, God will be at work in your life from the beginning and the end. That confidence takes the place of anxiety. Why does confidence take the place of anxiety? It does because God is always at work in your life. That's how it takes the place of anxiety. No matter what you're going through, God can still bring good out of your life. And then he goes down to verses 31 through 34. Listen to what it says here. It says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You understand this is rhetorical? A lot of what he's saying here. He's getting you to draw certain conclusions here that are amazing. Who will bring any charge against Those whom God has chosen. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that. Who was raised from the dead. Who raised to life as at the right hand or is at the right hand of God. And is also interceding for us. I love that. What shall we say to this? You know what Paul's saying? He goes, he's saying, what can we say to this? This is so amazing. This is beyond imagination. That you have been invited into a relationship with the creator of the universe through Jesus Christ. And he paid the price for your sins. And now you stand before God in heaven through his grace that you are justified. What do you say to that? I mean, do you have any words you can attach to it? That's what Paul is doing here. He's saying there are absolutely no words that you can attach to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. None. You can try, and we do. And we need to keep trying. But really, when it comes right down to it, Paul's going, what do you say to that? What do you say to that? Listen, do you have any idea? Do you have any idea how much you cost? I mean, do you have any idea what he went through to pay for you? What's your response to that? If God is for you, then who can be against you? He's saying whoever comes against you, I mean, the odds are really stacked against them because God is for you. That's what he's saying. He said, there, he's saying here, they've got to be crazy. Because you know who they're going up against? They're not just going up against Ron. They're going up against God and what he's done in my life and how he's justified me and made me right. Who is it that condemns? Again, a rhetorical question. Who is it that condemns? The answer is Satan. Yeah, he's the one. I love it because Paul doesn't even mention his name here. He doesn't even get any credit. You know, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Not going to even, but he says, "Who is it? Who who is it that that condemns?" 
it's Satan. And the thing is, is that he uses your past against you. And here's his ploy. When he comes to condemn, and the reason it might work in your life is because there's always some truth to it. And then we bite into that. We bite into that condemnation. Remember the beginning of this chapter? Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul circles back to that. And he says, now who is it, who is it condemns? Who is it? I mean, Satan doesn't even have the ability to do that. Why? Because Jesus stepped up and said, that's my son. That's my daughter. That's my boy. That's my girl. I paid the price. What are you going to do? What, what accusations are you going to level now? You know, one of the greatest strategies I found out works for me, you know, when you have that little, that morsel of truth and there's that, that shame or that condemnation that comes, you know, uh, you, you know, you're a pretty low life, you know, or you hear that, you know, you hear the, you hear different comments, especially maybe about your past. <laughs> this is, my response is usually, yeah, you're right, but Jesus already took care of it. I mean, I have nothing to argue because Jesus has already argued for me. He's already, the Bible says he's my advocate. He's the one who stands for me. He's the one who stands with me. And so what we're able to say is I, I stand in Jesus. I stand in him. So, so here's what I want you to think about when you leave this place today. Do you remember the conversation that Jesus had with, with Peter in John chapter 21? And, and I know that Peter entered into that, uh, that, that meal with Jesus feeling pretty, pretty shamed, pretty condemned. And, and Jesus asked that same question three times. He says, do, do you love me? interesting you want to you want to key in on that because that, that's a big deal when it comes to Romans eight twenty eight. do you love me and, and Peter said yeah I, I do and he's really struggling to find a way to communicate that because by the way our love is really not a perfect love it's it's a love in progress the, the only one that really loves us perfectly is Jesus Christ so so Peter's trying to respond he's trying to to deal with this, and he says, yeah, Lord, you know I love you. And then what does Jesus say? He says, well, then, you know, you need to feed my sheep, and you need to feed my lambs, and you need to feed my sheep. Isn't it interesting? So interesting to me uh, that, 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 that in the context of this love, when we enter and we're, we're engaged in this love uh, with God through Jesus Christ, that the way that, that it, it translates, the way that it works out, is, is how I am obedient to him. And so what, what Jesus was saying to Peter is, Peter, based on your call and your purpose and who you are, then this is what your task is. This is what you're going to be doing. You're going to be feeding my sheep and feeding my lambs. And it's in that love that you can be confident to move forward. It's in that love that I have for you and your love for me that we continue that relationship. And it's as you are obedient to the things that I've called you to be obedient to that you get to really experience that grace, that love. Obedience is a tough thing to talk about because we want our own way. We have our own brand of Christianity. But what we see here is if we love him and we're called according to his purpose. Again, this is not about perfection. This is about a progression. This is about growth. This is about maturing. 
and you find purpose in his love. That's where you find purpose. You're looking for purpose right now. You find it in the love of Christ. That's where you find it. A lot of us are looking in a lot of different places and we're thinking, where, where do I find purpose? You, you won't find purpose really, I mean really true purpose, the way you were created and wired. You don't find it anywhere else except in the love of Christ. And that whatever you are going through, God can work good out of it. And let me say this. I want you to hear this if you would. He's not here to bless your hopes and dreams. We're here to walk in his hopes and dreams. That's why we're here. That's, that's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. And the currency that he uses to have that lived out is his love. Do you love him? I think that's the question. Do you love him? Do you love him? Because when you respond to that, he's going to have something very, very practical to tell you. I mean, I can imagine that, that, that little barbecue that they had on the beach, Peter and Jesus. <laughs> Could have really got really blubbery, you know. Oh, yeah, I love you. Yeah, you love me. I love you, man. I love you too, man. And, that, and they get up and that's it. Nothing happens. That's not really how love works. Love works when we say, God, I love you. And he says, I love you. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to understand what that looks like. I want you to pass that on. Romans 8.28 is incredible. Incredible. But you have to get a hold of the meaning. You have to get a hold of that application. Loving him and walking according to his purpose. It's pretty big. Would you bow your head with me? Father, this this is really, this is all about Jesus. And um, I know over the centuries, millennials, <laughs> the, the, the time since it was written, this wonderful book, the time, since it was written till now, we have debated this in ways that I think would have just shocked the Apostle Paul. And what he was saying as he wrote this was, this is all about Jesus. This is all about having the confidence to move forward in life because you know that he's chosen you. You know that he's called you. You know that he knows you. And because of those things, we can move forward. And Lord, you can take the train wrecks of life because there will be, there are, and there'll be more. But you can take those and you can work good in those things. And Lord, what I pray right now is that you would just, if you would just expand our hearts a bit to understand that our definition of good isn't always your definition of good. That, that's where we all get fouled up. That's, that's where we get messed up. But you're a good God. And we know that. It's inherent. You are love. And so we trust in you. We lean into you. Bless us today. In Jesus' name we pray and we say, Amen. Thank you for listening. 
please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.